thinking about the idea of Jesus, the coming king, one of my favorite stories is the story of King Arthur. Now, maybe you've read kind of this highbrow uh, journey through history, and so you've read it in Old English, and, and so you've got a uh, badge of courage for that. Kudos. My favorite story about King Arthur is the one that came out in 1963 from Disney. It's called Sword in the Stone. And so you and your highbrow King Arthur can just hang out over here. I'm over here with Wart and Sir Kay and Sir Ector, and I love that story. I mean, it is, it's the story of this little boy who comes to live with Sir Ector and Sir Kay, and he serves as a page, and his name is Arthur, and he goes by the name Wart. Wart. And so not a, not a really high brown name, not a name that very many of us would love for that to be our nickname. Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. Well, I'm going to call you Wart from now on just to settle any type of highbrow attitude that may come out of you, right? And so they start calling him Wart, and, and what we see in Wart is weakness. What we see in him is really the sense of, of ineptitude. But he gets to do all these amazing things as he's working with Merlin, and Merlin's leading him to become these things. And so if you're into Disney, one of the reasons this is my favorite movie is you get to see a character become a squirrel, a bird, and a fish. Like, why they didn't win the Oscar, I have no idea. And so they really should have been in the running for the Oscar that year, in my mind. But over the course of this movie, we really see that what the people in that day want in a king is somebody strong, somebody powerful, somebody that can take charge, and somebody that can lead with a strong fist. What we see in Arthur, what we see in Wart is weakness, humility. And nobody recognizes the special essence of kind of who he is until he does something that no one else is able to do. And he reaches down and he grabs the sword and he pulls it out of the stone. And everybody around him recognizes there must be something intrinsically valuable and worthy in him that they missed all along. In him, they didn't see the king they wanted, but in him, they saw the king they needed. Today, as we begin to journey through scripture, we recognize that there is a king we want. And there is a king that we need. And for sure, there's a king we deserve, and there's a king we don't deserve, but we recognize those are not always the same thing. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, the Israelites are journeying through the land, and God is seeing what the people are going to do. He sees that when the people come into the land, they're going to look around, they're going to see distant, different systems of government, and they're going to set their heart on what they see everybody else around them doing. And so he gives them this word in Deuteronomy 17, and he says, when you come into the land... And the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it, and you dwell it. Listen to what they're going to say. I will set a king over me like all the nations. Like all the nations around me. So God says, you may indeed set this king up, and he begins to give them rules of what this king needs to look like. And what I want you to look specifically is what this king should do. Verse 18 of chapter 17, he says, And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and all the statutes that are in them. 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandments either to the right or the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Well, they come into the land, and, and God appoints judges over the people, and we see the reign of judges. And if you read the book of Judges, you see some good guys, you see some bad guys, you see Deborah who does a solid job. But when we get into 1 Samuel, we find that Samuel has been reigning as judge in Israel, and he has his two sons, Joel and Abijah. And these guys, they are not doing a good job. People look at them and they say that they are perverting the system of justice in the land. They're not abiding by what, kind of what God's heart looks like. And so when we get into 1 Samuel chapter 8, what we find is the elders come together and they meet Samuel. And this is, by all purposes, an intervention. And so they come in and they meet Samuel and he says, Then all the elders of Israel gather together. They come to Samuel at Ramah and they say to him, Behold, you're old and your kids don't walk in your ways. Listen to these words that come from Deuteronomy 17. Now appoint for us a king like all the other nations. Effectively, this is what happens. They remember the soon history of the judges. They remember sometimes they had a good judge, sometimes they had a bad judge, and it was like this. It was this roller coaster ride. They're closer to God when they have a good judge. They're farther from God when they have a bad judge. They feel the oppression coming in from those around them when they have a bad judge. And so they look at Samuel and they say, this guy has it. His heart is set on God. He's following God. He is leading us the right direction, but he's getting old, like crypt keeper old. He's going to die. It happens to most of us when we get old. And so he's getting old. He's going to die. They look at his kids and they say, we don't want to go there again. We know what it is to have judges whose hearts are not set on God. We know what it is to have judges who follow only their own system of justice. And we read in verse 3 about his sons that they took bribes and perverted justice. Now put yourself in Samuel's shoes for a second. You've been faithfully serving for a number of years. You've been faithfully pouring out your heart, and you're grieved in some sense that your kids are a couple of knuckleheads. But two in this, you have these men who come to you and effectively say, your leadership is coming to an end. We want you to change everything. We want a king. We don't like the way that you do it. We want it done this way. We want it changed. There's a king they wanted. So Samuel goes to God. And he pours out his heart before God. And effectively, in Samuel's pouring out his heart before God, he says, this people, they are rejecting me. They're rejecting me. They're saying that they don't want me to be king over, they don't want me to judge over them anymore. Look what God says to him. Verse 7. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. Give them a king. Look at why. He says, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. Their desire was to have something tangible, something powerful. They wanted a powerful king. They wanted him to rule. They wanted him to reign. And, and the way that God reckons this, the way that he sees this, he looks at it and he says, they're not rejecting you. They are rejecting me. And then he tells them, he says, they've always rejected me. From the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to today, this people continue to reject me. They continue to, to search for themselves leaders to put into place over them something tangible, something controllable, something like everyone else around them. 
So he sends Samuel back and he says, all right, this is what you're going to do. You're going to appoint for them a king, but I want you to tell them exactly what this king's going to look like. I want you to tell them, in essence, how this is going to fail, how it's going to fail miserably. So Samuel goes back and he begins to tell them, I'm going to give you a king, but you're not going to like it, and this is what he's going to be like. And in 14 through 18, we really begin to see how these things are so incredibly close to them, how they should have heard Samuel in some sense say this and be like, oh, we're so sorry. Like, I'm sure we can work with Joel and Abijah. God can change their hearts. He can make this better for us. But in essence, look at this. He says, he will take, speaking of the king, he will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. Imagine somebody comes on your property, they walk in your house, and they say, oh yeah, that sofa, that's the best you've got. That car, that's the best you've got. Those children, they're the best you've got. We want them. They're mine. This is what it's going to take for me to be the ruler, to be a leader over you. I want the best of everything you have. And I need that, and I want that. So then he turns and he says, and look at this, he's going to take the best. And in verse 15, he'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He'll take your male servants, your female servants, the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to his work. He'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves. Anybody want to sign up? Does anybody say, oh, this is the greatest sales pitch in the world? I bet they were chomping at the bit to go for this. The amazing thing is he finishes this list, and look what God says. He says, and in that day you'll cry out, verse 18, because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves today, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God tells them this is not going to go well for them. They have set their minds on their conception of king. It is the king they want. And in some sense, it is the king they deserve. And so they've set their mind on it, and and they've been warned what it's going to be like. You're going to have a ruler. You're going to give him tons of power and authority. You're going to give your land over to him. You're going to give his provisions over to him. And you are going to hate it when you recognize what you've done. So God tells him to go out and to tell the people that. And so you imagine Samuel over the people and he's speaking to the elders and to the multitude gathered and he's telling them exactly how bad this is going to be. And we, what we find is their response. Verse 19 says, But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us. And what we find is what their heart is captivated in is security. What their heart is captivated in is expansion. Verse 20. There will be a king over us that we may be also like all the nations around us, that our king may judge us and go out before us and find our battles. What they fail to recognize in desiring a king that would go out, that would fight their battles for them, is that they already had one. That he had been fighting that he had been faithful, and that he had already been ruling them. They reject God for something tangible, for something real and immediate. So what we find is that Samuel goes out, and he begins to to search for the man that God has set his affections on, and, and God's affections in chapter 10 land on Saul, so Saul would be the first king of Israel. Andrew Peterson, in his Behold the Lamb album, in his song So Long Moses, describes Saul this way. He says he was foolish and strong. And that's exactly what we see over the course of Saul's leadership. He's incredibly foolish, but amazingly strong. 
So Saul arrives on the scene, and, and like he's straight out of central casting, Saul comes in, and he is the guy. If you and I are going to pick somebody to be king, he is that man. Saul comes out, and he's heads and shoulders above everybody else. He is, it says that he is from the shoulder up, taller than everybody. He's handsome. The text tells us in chapter 9, two or three times, how incredibly handsome Saul is. I mean, he looks like a king. If we were all to line up and go from shortest to tallest, none of the short people in this room would be considered kingly, right? And so it's the tall, it's the muscular, it's the square jaw. This is the guy that we look and say, this is the guy. Like, if he's going to go fight battles for me, I don't want him being some, some soft, middled, short guy that's, that's, that's nearsighted and just the spectacle who walks in and say, you leave me alone, please leave me alone. We want him to be the guy who stands up and who says, leave me alone. Like, this is what we want, and this is what we see in this description of Saul, that by his very appearance and who he is, that he would strike fear into the hearts of all their enemies. He's strong, he's mighty, he's powerful. He's the king they wanted. He's the king they deserve. What we see is that Samuel brings, in, brings him in and he anoints him. He sets him to be their king. And, and in chapter 10, after Saul is anointed, and he's on his way back to his father's household. In, chap, in verse 9 of chapter 10, look at this. I want you to recognize something. It says, when he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all the signs came to pass that day. God stirred in Saul's heart so incredibly mighty that he took this guy that looked like a king, he took this guy who was incredibly powerful, he took this guy that would make foolish decisions, and he gave him a heart to know God. And you can be incredibly flawed and, and, and given to deception and given to weakness. And that's who Saul was. But what we see in this is that God comes in, and as long as Saul keeps his affections on God, God stays his affections on Saul and provides for the nation of Israel through him. But unfortunately, if you read through the story of Saul, you'll find that his mind does not stayed on God. In chapter 13, what we find is that the Philistines have come out to fight Saul, and Saul and his son Jonathan have around 3,000 troops, and so they have this army well, this sounds like a lot of people until you begin to read that the Philistines have come out and they have decidedly more. Verse 5 says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore. So you feel pretty good about your 3,000, right? Like I don't have 3,000 friends. I got 1,000 of you that claim to know me on Facebook, but I don't have 3,000 friends. And so he has 3,000 people, and you feel pretty good about that. We're totally going to rape these guys. We are going to destroy them. We're going to crush their heads. We're going to stomp them like bugs. So that's what 6,000 chariots looks like. That's what it looks like for men of the seashore. Oh, my goodness. And so he begins to panic. His people begin to panic. And what we see is that everyone around Saul begins to absolutely freak out and lose their minds. Verse 6 says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs and in cisterns. And some of them said, Where's that river? I'm going to swim across it. I've got to get away from these guys. The text doesn't tell us, but I'm certain that there's a guy sitting in the corner sucking his thumb saying, Mommy, Mommy, Mommy. Saul looked at it. He 
recognized there's zero chance he wins this battle. The people looked at it, they recognized there's zero chance they win this battle. And he's in the midst of waiting for Samuel to show up at this point to, to offer a blessing, to offer a burnt sacrifice before God so that God would win the battle for them. So what does he do? He looks around, his people are panicking, they're hiding, they're digging holes so that they can get in and get away. They're swimming rivers to get away from these guys. And, and, and Saul looks at this and he says, everybody's scattering, everybody's running away. Verse 9 of chapter 13, so it says, So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. And as soon as he had finished the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? See, Saul thought it was just this series of steps that it didn't matter who offered it. It didn't matter whatever. You see, the way... Saul is looking at God is the way that some of you and I look at God occasionally. If I go to church, give an offering, I don't cuss too much, I don't watch too many music, too, or too, much, too many movies with foul language and, and nudity and whatever it is in that, that God is somehow commanded to extend blessing to you in your life. If I just do these things, then God is like you know what, I wasn't going to bless him, but he did those things, and so I kind of feel like my hands are bound. It's exactly what we do. We read about Saul, and we say, I would have never stepped in and been so incredibly presumptuous to demand blessing from God. But this is effectively how many of us relate to God. We expect God to extend blessing to us when we are faithful to him. And this is the cycle that many of us find ourselves on. And so when we are in the midst of being incredibly faithful and we don't sense the palpable presence of God, we don't see him moving and blessing for us, what is it training our hearts to do? To withdraw. We withdraw. We pull back and say, I was doing all kinds of faithful things for you. Like I went to half the church services last year. I thought very seriously about giving money. In fact, I gave money to that little bucket guy, and he, he rang that bell in my face. And I gave more money. He rang that bell in my face, and I gave more money. I took his bell and threw it away, and he's not ringing it no more. We have this understanding that the more faithful we are, the more stuff we do, the more blessings God should bring upon us. Saul so looked at God, and he said, God will be commanded to move, to bless, if I do this. What that shows us is that the heart that God had given him to follow God had slipped away. That Saul no longer recognized dependence upon God. What Saul saw and perceived was that God was dependent upon Saul. So Samuel shows up. He says, what have you done? So Saul begins to explain, when I saw the people were scattering, I, I should know what to do, and so I, I did it. I offered the sacrifice. First 13, it picks up, and it says, And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for, when, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom will not continue, and the Lord will seek after one that is a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. But because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you, you will not be that king. You imagine being in the midst of rule, in the midst of reigning. Prophet comes to you and says, "Somebody else is going to be the guy." 
God's care, his provision is stripped away from Saul. And what we find is that it is moved to the most unlikely of people. It's moved to the most unlikely of people. It is lands on a man named David. David's likely somewhere between 13 and 15 years old. God comes to Samuel in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, and he asks him, he says, How long are you going to grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Saul had an advocate in Samuel. Samuel was completely invested in the leadership of Saul. He was bereft, he was broken, he was distraught when Saul messed up, when God removed his blessing, removed the kingdom from his purview. So Samuel goes out and and he meets Jesse and Jesse begins to line up his sons and and he sees the first son come out in verse 6. He says, when he looked on uh, Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. And look what happens. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The first thing we had learned about Saul was how incredibly handsome he was and how wonderfully tall he was. He was the king they wanted. He looked the part, he fit the part, he acted the part. Samuel shows up and he begins to run through David's sons and so this big, tall, strapping guy comes out. God says to Samuel's heart, that's not the guy. Next guy comes out, that's not the guy. Next guy comes out, that's not the guy. He's thinking, lo and behold, where's the guy? So Samuel asks him, he says, Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, yet, yet one song remains, the youngest. Behold, he's keeping the sheep. And so they send and they get him. They bring David back. And all the text tells us is that he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. But likely we, we learned that he's 15 years old. Imagine being 15 years old and all of a sudden this guy who you probably ne- never met before stands and recognizes you in the presence of all your older brothers. And not only does he recognize you, but look what he says. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went back to Ramah. And we read this, and, and if you skip through and you're reading chapters quickly, you think, oh man, it's just a short few pages until David begins to reign as king. From the time of the anointing of David till he actually assumed control, likely close to 25 years. For 25 years, he had the blessing of God, he had the spirit of God, he had the pronouncement of God that he would be king, that his blessing would rest on him. For 25 years, he willingly submitted himself to Saul. Served in his house. Escaped his sword. Fled from his armies. And even when Saul was finally put to death, David wept. This is how he refers to Saul. He continues to refer to Saul as the Lord's anointed and did not see it his job to put him to death. And David... They begin to get, not the king they wanted, but the king they needed. And David 
because of his heart and his disposition towards God, they begin to get not the king they deserved, but the king they didn't deserve. And God does this amazing thing, and, and we see it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God is meeting with David, and David's telling him how he wants to build a, a house for him. He wants to build the temple for God. So God comes to him, and look at this promise that David makes, or God makes to David. Verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up an offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, when he does wrong things, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne will be established forever in accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision. These are the words that Nathan spoke to David. David learns, he discovers that his kingdom will be an enduring kingdom. That from his line, the blessing of God will never cease to be present. And over the course of David's life, his track record is not exemplary. That even though he's spoken of as a man after God's own heart, we recognize that he sins in a profound and glorious way. He sets his affections on another man's wife. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, he sees her out bathing. He calls for her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He sends, uh, basically puts a hit out on Uriah's life when he can't get Uriah to sleep with his wife, to believe that maybe this child is his. I mean, this is like a telenovela right here in the first century, first century B.C. And so what we begin to see in this is that David is incredibly fallen, that he's incredibly in need of the gracious redemption of God. But we see the, the graciousness and the redemption of God move through David, raises up his son Solomon from his relationship with Bathsheba. And Solomon goes on and extends the kingdom, and they, they enjoy uninterrupted peace. People seek out Solomon because of his wisdom, but even in his great wisdom, his heart is far from God. He moves almost directly in line with the prohibitions of Deuteronomy 17. He gathers many horses, he gathers many wives, he amasses tremendous wealth for himself. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam comes along after him and in Rehoboam's absolute ludicrous recommendation following his friends, he splits the kingdom. But still, what we see in this is that the blessing of God remains on the house of David. We see good kings, we see bad kings, we see good kings in Israel, good kings in Judah, bad kings in Israel, bad kings in Judah. And over the course of this, all of Israel has their hopes, their dreams, their expectations on this king they want. There's this king they want. They want him strong. They want him mighty. They have in their minds David, all of his strength, all of his splendor, none of his foibles, none of his weakness. This is what they have in mind. So Jesus arrives on the scene. He's born 
not in the midst of nobility. He's not born in, in castles. He's not a son of kings. He's from the line of David, but man, he's far down removed. Like all of us have a shot at being the king of England, but none of us are going to get it, right? He's so far removed that nobody thinks that he's anything special when he's born. And then in John chapter 6, what we see is that people begin to follow Jesus because of the things he's doing, the amazing signs he's performing. Verse 2 of chapter 6, it says, A large crowd was following him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. They see in Jesus this idea that the kingdom is, is beginning to crystallize and take shape. This is a guy we can follow. He can heal the sick. He teaches like nobody's business. There is real power in this guy. They begin to think that maybe Jesus is actually this king we want. Maybe Jesus is actually this king we deserve. And so there in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the multitude. All these people are to gather together. And Jesus says, it's late, we need to feed them. The disciples squabble, recognize there's no money. If they work 200 days and receive pay for that, it would only be enough to give each person just a little morsel. Andrew, ever the optimist, comes out and he says that there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Jesus takes it, he blesses it, and there's so much left over that there are leftovers forever. Effectively. These people are awed and amazed. They're already following Jesus because of the signs they saw him perform. Now they saw him feed all these people. They recognize it, and Jesus is finally the one they want to follow. Jesus. The text tells us perceiving that they were going to make him, take him by force and make him king, withdraws to a mountain by himself. Why? Because Jesus recognizes this misperception. In him, they saw the king they wanted. But in him, they had not yet seen the king they needed. So Jesus withdraws. Jesus would not be spoken of again as king until he comes into Jerusalem, seated on the back of a donkey, during the triumphal entry. So he comes in, people are laying olive branches down, they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, namely, the king of Israel. Jesus comes in in the most humble way he can, fulfilling Zechariah. People cry out, they see him, they remember his teaching, they remember his power, they remember his authority, and they think to themselves in their heart, this finally is the king we want. Amazing thing is they see Jesus come in this way, and he begins to anger them, he begins to disappoint them. Because in Jesus we see servant-heartedness. In Jesus we see humility. In Jesus we see brokenness. In Jesus we see weakness. In Jesus we see one who is absolutely, incredibly broken. In Jesus we see one when he says absolutely unworthy to be king. Doesn't assert himself. Doesn't show us the type of strength we want. Doesn't show us the type of power we want. And they begin to reject him. And the next time Jesus is spoken of as king is the time when it appears above his head, hanging over the cross, and it says, King of the Jews. 
It says it in Aramaic. It says it in Greek. And it says it in Hebrew. In Jesus, we have an opportunity not to receive the king we want, but in Jesus, we have an opportunity to receive the king we need. Paul gives us this amazing description of the coronation of Jesus in Philippians 2. Philippians 2, speaking about Jesus, Paul wrote this. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, the coming king, fully man, fully God. And so he apprises who he is, and he says, Although I exist in the form of God, it's not this thing to be grasped, to be greedily held on to, but he divests himself of it. The text tells us that he emptied himself of it by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. In Jesus, we see this one who is high and mighty, but who takes the form of nothing. In Jesus, we see this one who is absolutely stronger than any king we'd ever imagined, any king we'd ever want. But in Jesus, we see the one who we need allowed himself to be brought low and broken. In Jesus, we see the king we need had to come as us, fallen and broken, weak, feeble, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, the coronation of Jesus doesn't happen at his birth. The coronation of Jesus doesn't happen because those around him begin to recognize that he's so good, great, and wonderful. The coronation of Jesus takes place when he releases everything, when he divests himself of this. He doesn't avail himself of divinity. He submits himself to death on a cross, and he submits himself to that point for you and for me. Paul goes on and he says, and this is why. At the end of this, therefore, verse 9 in chapter 2 of Philippians, God has highly exalted on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Amen. We see in men like Saul, men like David, the king we want. We see in Jesus the king we need. We see in men like Saul and like David, the king we think we deserve, but we recognize in King Jesus that he is the king we need and the king we don't deserve. Can I tell you this morning that if you have yet to surrender your heart to Jesus, that as we read about in Ephesians 3, that God desires to rule and to reign in your heart, and he beckons you to come, to confess your sin before him, to allow your heart to be extended to him, humble and broken, recognizing all you bring to Jesus is weakness. All you bring to Jesus is need. All you bring to Jesus is liability. And the love of the cross, and the love of the cross Jesus, his blood poured out for you, invites you to come that his abode may be in your heart and that he may completely change your heart and give you a new heart that beats for him. Would you join with me in prayer?
Father God, we pray this morning that our hearts would be soft before you. And that we would be humble. That we would not be afraid to be vulnerable. To show ourselves to who you are. To surrender ourselves to be used by you. So God, I pray for those who have yet to submit themselves to you. God, I pray for those who have and who see themselves in the midst of being fallen and broken and failing. God, that you would renew your commitment of love to them. And I thank you for the discipline you bring close to us to reveal to those times when we are far from you. God, I pray the encouragement of your spirit among those who this very morning, that's how they feel. God, would you convince us of your great love for us? And would you show us that Jesus is not the king we wanted, but he's the king we needed? And all praise and glory be to you that you didn't give us what we deserved, but you gave us what we didn't deserve in the person of Jesus. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.